Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, August the 18th, 2023. Um, you may have heard some advertising on Keenon. Uh, I have to admit that I'm not a great fan of online advertising for podcasts. And we're going to have some interesting announcements over the next few weeks about the future of the show in terms of advertising. And in some ways, this was sparked by my guest today. Uh, Jemima Kelly is a columnist at the Financial Times. She wrote an interesting piece recently. Advertising has reached a, no a new low in the age of podcasting, which is quite an achievement since the old low was pretty low. Uh, <laughs> Jemima is joining us from Hackney Wick uh, in North London. Jemima, how bad is advertising and the podcast industry these days? Your, your, your piece really resonated with me as a podcast. Yeah, I think it's very bad. Um, I really resent having to listen to um, host-read adverts, as they're called. Um, I just think it completely undermines the credibility of the podcast host to be reading out these adverts. Like, if they're, I don't know, if it's like a podcast on, you know, marketing or whatever, then maybe fair enough. But when it's like an ad, a, a podcast on, like, the critical issues of the day and, like, you know, the... the the, the, you know, the problem that we have in terms of, you know, the pursuit of truth and like, you know, we're not pursuing the truth properly anymore. And, you know, there's, there's an issue of free speech and um, how do we know what's real anymore? And then th those people who are talking about those kind of issues are then kind of going seamlessly from talking in a very serious way about that into like selling better help, this amazing app that allows you to find a therapist on an app like what 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 uh you know innovation wow and like um and they kind of talk in exactly the same tone that they've been talking about the other stuff in and it's so like discombobulating it's so it's so um it just undermines the whole thing right and there used to be this separation between um I think what an institution allows you to do, being somewhere like the FT, allows you to have separation between you and the commercial side. And obviously, I'm aware that that uh, you know that we that I work for a business and we need to sell stuff. And I, you know, I get my salary because I work for a business. But they deal with that, and I think that's quite an important kind of separation. Like you need that kind of church and state separation. And I think the the modern way of kind of um, content producers being on their own, you know, influencer or guru types, people having their own podcasts or their own substacks or whatever has, means increasingly that kind of, um, you know, you're, you have to be a hustler as well as um, a thinker. And um, I just don't, I just think that, and I'm aware that I have a luxury, that I have the kind of luxury of not having to think about the commercial side of things. And I understand that it's not that I don't think that people should do things independently. I think there's a lot of value brought by people on Substack and podcasts and people who are outside of um, institutions and have kind of certain freedoms um, to pursue ideas that they might not be able to within institutions, perhaps. But I also think it's a real problem. And I think, fine, you know, you can use 
adverts to fund your podcast of course like we need we need you need to be able to fund yourself right but don't do it yourself <laughs> the impetus for this was like funnily enough it was a, a quite a funny thing that russell brand who's like you know one of the new gurus um of the modern age um he was he was um oh yeah you've got it up so yeah, he, he was had, interviewing the scientists he, he was interviewing the scientists oh sorry noises I forgot to turn the Pomodoro timer off. Um, <laughs> um, uh, he was interviewing DeSantis and interrupts him. I think he didn't really interrupt him in reality. I think he like he popped it in afterwards. But um, he uh, inter interrupted DeSantis to advertise this sheath underwear for men that like allows you to have separate pouches in your underwear. Sorry, but that's what he started talking about. And then he was talking about to like. He was saying to Sam, you know, Ron, don't you get a bit hot down there and all this stuff. And it was ridiculous. And and then and it had kind of interrupted Ron saying, um, you know, how he has how he knows he's doing the right thing because he has the right enemies or some nonsense. And then Russell Brand comes in and says this. And then he goes back to Ron DeSantis. And that was kind of funny. And then I thought, let me I, I listen to quite a lot of podcasts and I'm often really irritated by these host red ads. So I thought, let me just find another example because that's funny. Let me see if I can find anything worse. So I like I, I had never listened to the Lex Friedman pod, podcast, but I knew that it's one. I know that it's one of the biggest podcasts. And I thought, let me see if he does ads because um, and anyway, and I found that he would recently interviewed um, Noah Yuval Harari. And I thought, oh, that might be interesting. Let me listen. So I started listening to it. And at the beginning, he does all these like adverts. Right. And it's like he was he did like five different ones. And um, for all like the usual suspects, there's this like cooling one, you know, like a mattress, uh, cooling mattress thing. I've forgotten the name of it. Better Help always. And then there's all Better Help is the biggest spender on um, on podcast advert advertising um, in recent. Yeah, time. you uh, you link to the top fifteen. Uh, advertisers, yeah, exactly. Um, um, Better Help, Amazon, Hello, Hello Fresh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, then you can see the athletic sports. I mean, the whole, the, all the top 15 are sports except for the Angie group, which is society and culture, and Apple, which is comedy. I don't know what's funny about Apple, but... Uh, oh, interesting. Wait, what do you mean? But, but, but better help is not sports. What do you mean? Well, in the, in the genre, they're, they're, I guess... Oh, I see. Good point. That's so strange. It's that's not really a correct. Um... Yeah, I mean, I've had the same thing where I've had to read out ads for particularly, um, and I, I I try to do this without laughing sometimes without success. Um, uh, devices which uh, remove hair from various parts of your body for men. Um, it is, it is a little disconcerting and gross. But on the other hand. Um, it's all very well, Jemima, for you. You work for the FT. They pay you, yeah, and they sell their product. I pay to uh, I pay because I think the the FT is a good product, so I to, to access their product. It's the only way of, of, of well. There's two ways of making money as a podcaster. Either one does advertising, or one does the Substack model, which is a subscription model. There's no third way. No, but I and I and as I say, I'm fine about advertising, but I don't think you should do host red advertising. You should get a third party to do it. So like, which is what we do in every other form like of media, right? And actually, those are in programmatic ads on podcasts. That's not actually true. In the early days of television, in the classic days, the the glory days of television, uh, advertising was always read by the host. 
Really? Because there was the, uh, there was an example I was going to put into my column, actually, that I didn't have space for. There was a guy called Paul Harvey, like a, a former American radio host, and he used to do it quite, quite. Yeah, um, I think that that was the the way for better or worse. I'm not saying it was necessarily he got good. charged. He got charged by like the Federal Trade Commission for like, you know, for like um, making up unsubstantiated um, advertising claims. And he got called by like Salon mag magazine called him like the finest huckster to ever grace the airwaves or something. So like back in those days, it was seen as not acceptable. But these days it's like, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I don't know why people think it's okay. Well, why can't you just get a third party, right? Okay. Well, the because a third party, uh, there's two reasons I know as a podcaster. First, you have to pay the third party. And secondly, um, it all comes down to, to the A word, authenticity. You're, you're, you've written about that. Um, you said that uh, podcasting is embraced for its supposed authenticity, but actually the reverse is true. So yeah, I, I think mean, I advertisers think... like the idea of a, of a Russell Brand or a Lex Friedman reading their ads because it gives the feel of authenticity. And that's what the audience is looking for. Of course, it's profoundly inauthentic. Of course. So like, I understand the reasoning for it, but that's what I, I have an, an issue with. It's a massive exploitation of this um, parasocial relationship between, which is a completely kind of imbalanced relationship between the listener and the podcast host. Uh, so of course I understand why. And then there's like this. Be, 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 yeah. You call parasocial in your piece. Uh, and this was a piece from the yes. Atlantic by Arthur Brooks, uh, they're imaginary friends for adults. It's the, yeah. one of those friends we have on Facebook or Instagram. And, and really interesting, apparently uh, people with avoidant attachment styles are more likely to, uh, to, to develop parasocial relationships with, for example, podcast hosts, which I find extremely interesting um, because people who are kind of afraid of intimacy uh, not to go down like a completely different route. <laughs> it kind of makes sense that they are looking for uh, people who are safe to kind of worship because they're never going to actually develop an intimate relationship with them. So then they can kind of safely, um, you know, be a fan of someone without having to risk this this terrifying, intimate, real, actual intimacy. Yeah, sort of, it's like, uh, it's a, it, it encapsulates perhaps the identity of DeSantis. There was an interesting piece today about how his awkwardness is beginning to resonate because most people seem to be particularly socially awkward these days. Wow, that is an interesting piece. He is the new Nixon. I, I, a lot of people have written him off. I wonder whether he might be Nixon in the sense that his awkwardness and lack of social skills might actually turn out to be a plus. I would bet such a lot of money that, it will, that they will not. <laughs> yeah, you may be right. I mean, obviously, Trump might end up in jail and then he might have more of a chance. But I think Vivek Ravaswari, uh, sorry, Ravaswamy was. Yeah, getting, he's he's I a more he's conventional politics. I mean, back to the, the advertising industry and podcasting, you noted yeah. that um, in the US, revenues hit almost two billion in 2022, which to me actually is not that much. Is it a real industry, yeah. do you think? Is it what's right? Is it a real industry? Yeah, I mean, or is it just a blip? I mean, two billion dollars is not a large amount in, in yeah, in I hear you. Terms. That was just in the US, I think. Um, I mean, I think there's, I think it's a, it's a kind of losing. I think podcast hosts. Sorry to 
say this, but I think, I guess it's a slightly kind of losing battle, isn't it? Because there are now more than three You're million... You're crushing me, Jemima. What am sorry. I going to do? I'm sorry, but there are, <laughs> there are now more than three million podcasts out there, right? It's like influencers. Like, you know, there's 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 only so much money to go around. As you say, it's not an, in, it's not an incredibly large amount of money. And it seems to attract a lot. I mean, my experience, I'm not naming any names. It seems to attract kind of a lot of low life types who are taking their five or 10% here and there. And their whole ecosystem is, I hate that word, but I don't know a better word, is so confusing. There's so many moving parts that no one can explain it properly. No one can explain what? what? The, the, the economics of it and who gets what. Of, um, of, in, in, of kind of podcasting or influence? What, of what? Well, the, the advertising piece of podcasting. Oh, I see. Well, yeah, and, and apparently um, programmatic ads are, are kind of increasingly um, popular and those are kind of targeted at the listener. So in the same way that you, you know, you get targeted ads on if you go on social media um, that track you across like other platforms or whatever, that those are increasingly being used in podcasts. So now you like, yeah. and so those would not be host read. Um, You're convincing me, um, uh, Jemima, to give up advertising what about how, no, am, I mean, gonna, I how am i going to get people to subscribe to this show on on substack what's the sell yeah, okay well sam harris does this thing where you're like listening to this amazing conversation and then he just fades it out and he's like yeah uh andrew sullivan does the same thing but i was talking yeah, to Andrew's the, the substack great. people and they don't like that model because they think it's a bit of a hard sell i mean it is a hard sell and it only it only the only the kind of most successful people are going to manage it and maybe that's right. okay maybe like maybe it's only them ultimately maybe you know maybe you know survival of the of the fittest like you know maybe there shouldn't be three million different podcasts and like you know it's it's it shouldn't be so easy to make like why should it be so easy why do we expect three million people in the world to be able to like make a living from a podcast like people just aren't that interesting like you know not many <laughs> or aren't that good at <laughs> aren't that good at talking or whatever you know it's, yeah. it's I, I mean does it reflect a, a more of a winner a winner take all economy where you have a tiny handful of superstars the sam yeah. harris's the andrew sullivan's yeah. the lex friedman's the russell brands of the world and yeah. the the app the complete absence of a middle class and then this huge pro proletariat or precariat <laughs> of broadcasters who who make nothing and who are yeah and that's fair enough. Crap away for free. Yeah, and I mean, they want to do it. Like people love to like listen to their own voice and to like have conversations with their mates and like you know people love to do it. So you know, they don't have to do it. They don't. I, I how don't... am I going to get to be uh, an Andrew Sullivan or a, a Lex Friedman or a, a Sam Harris, uh, Jemima? Give me some tips. I mean, you're already up there, Andrew. You know? I wish now. Now you say that to all the boys. I'm sure. <laughs> Um, I mean, they're just very good. Like, I, I would make an exception for Lex Friedman. I only listen to that one podcast. I, sorry, but I, it's not my taste. But yeah, I, I, I know he gets podcast. huge numbers, but I, I, I haven't been struck with him either. Do you think no, you need a, a shtick, a, a certain focus? I know you're you're a contrarian. Do you think one needs to be some sort of contrarian or other to get mm. a mass following? I don't actually. If you look at the like the biggest uh, podcasts in the UK, like they're all the kind of centric. There's a lot of you know the rest is politics. Alistair yeah. Campbell and Rory Stewart, like, and now those like, guys are a bit too reasonable for my taste, though. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I love Rory Stewart. I've got slightly less time for Alistair Campbell. I mean, I um, 
uh, I don't really listen to it. I find again, I, I agree with you. I don't really, I don't really have much kind of. But they had ads, and uh, and I heard Harari actually on the show, and it was a good show. Uh, so what, what's I mean, the difference between the ads on uh, the, their history show and, and and on the other stuff that you're critical of? Do they do they do their own ads? I don't know because I don't really. Listen uh, to actually, I don't think they do. Well, that's the difference. That's all I'm saying. I'm not criticizing advertising. I think ideally, like I love listening to Sam Harris, like without ads or whoever, you know, the, the podcasts, my favorite podcasts, most, a lot of them don't use ads, but I guess that's partly because mm -hmm. as you say, they're like incredibly successful. And then they have this, like the fifth column as well, for example, they have another thing where it's like, you get to you, if you're a subscriber, um, then you get to hear like more podcasts or you get to hear longer. Yeah, I think that's the sell. Well, I'm going to do exactly what you're going to kill me for and hopefully you won't go but off. But you're not reading it out or you are? I'm not going to read it. Well, I'm going to say something nice about Liberties because they are my sponsor, uh, a quarterly journal of culture and politics put out in Washington, D.C. by a group of very smart people. Um, they're sponsoring the show. I'm going to run a short ad. So I'm not actually in this ad, Jemima. So I, I, my sense is that this interlude, this intermission comes with the approval of Jemima Kelly. But even if it doesn't, you still have to listen. And afterwards, Jemima, we're going to talk social media. So stay tuned, everyone, for the next few seconds as we get our message from our sponsor, not written or read by me, by the way. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. Go to libertiesjournal.com. I'm not going to sell you any Liberties underpants. Um, we are talking with uh, Jemima Kelly, columnist, a controversial, uh, contrarian columnist um, at the Financial Times. Uh, I, I'm interested in your take also, and this sort of connects Jemima with what we were talking about in the first part about podcasting, your take on the nature of social media um you you're on twitter i mean i'm not sure you're a power user but you've been on since 2012 january 2012 why did you go on in the first place do you remember the first time you saw twitter good question by the way i think we should call it fka twitter like fka twigs but twitter because it's now x Other, and we right otherwise uh, like just, the prince uh, otherwise known as x Exactly. Well, previously known as Twitter. It's been sent. We've all been sent a style note saying we now have to call it X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, I remember, yeah, I was working at The Economist as a editorial assistant, which is kind of how I got into journalism, because then I started pitching them stories and um, and they were all on Twitter. And so I joined um, and I didn't really get it at first. You know, I remember because um yeah, before that, I had kind of I had some friends who were on it and I was on the kind of Twitter that was like social Twitter that was just a bit like Facebook, but people seemed to be a bit less active on it. So I didn't really get it at that point. And then I started, I set up a different account for myself, like as a journalist, as a kind of, or at that point, kind of wannabe journalist, I guess, um, and started following journalists and kind of public intellectuals and and um and then you i started say that term with a bit of irony i think 
Um, yeah, I think so, actually. I was just, I, I, I was considering writing a column about that was going to be defending thought leaders because I've always kind of been quite queasy about these thought leader types uh, and have been much more, so the Dan Dresner kind of, um, uh, kind of separation of those He's two. He's been on the show. When you say you didn't get it, what is there to get about what was formerly well, known as Twitter? Oh, I didn't get it. Oh, I see. Um, I didn't because I was using the kind of so as I say, I was on like I was following some friends and people would like tweet. Oh, I'm hyped about going to this thing tonight. Or they would say like they'd make a joke. And I was like, oh, I don't really understand what the point of this is. And people weren't really having like debates. But then I kind of, as I say, got onto a different different bit of Twitter because there are lots of different kinds of Twitter. <laughs> and I got onto like media and thinking Twitter. And then I saw people having arguments about stuff and in those days quite, perhaps quite reasonably good natured arguments um and uh and then i started like seeing the seeing how this was a really interesting kind of um place for you know a kind of uh modern day coffee house uh except obviously very performative and um <laughs> self-aware and um and, and uh, you know, all within like the space of what used to be, I think, 140 characters. Um, I think it's changed quite a lot in the 10 years or so since I joined, obviously. Um, and now, I mean, the whole thing about like, I mean, it's kind of dead, isn't it? Twitter, like the whole thing about- Oh, yeah, you, you think it's dead. You, I mean, uh, I'm still on you, it. you wrote a piece back in March suggesting that uh, Elon Musk's Twitter X is dying a slow, tedious death. Do you think that's still true six months yeah. later? Yeah, I think I, I think I called that reasonably correctly. Although in the meantime, I had to slightly, I did another column about how I thought that community notes was actually a really good feature. And I do think community notes is a really good feature. Um, I think that I can't stand kind of, well, that's a bit strong. I have a lot of issues with traditional um, fact-checking type operations, um, particularly, actually, maybe even particularly not the kind of original ones, but the news organizations that set up their own kind of fact-checking. How, how important do you think Twitter is to the, it, it seems to have been driven in many ways in the early years by conventional mainstream journalists like yourself when you check out your bio on the ft you've got your email and also your uh your at jemima joanna um x handle how, how important does it remain amongst mainstream journalists like yourself i mean i'm offended by being called a mainstream journalist no i'm not really um how well, what, how would you define yourself then, no, i'm joking you... I'm, I'm i'm just being a bit facetious but um i um what do i think uh, the importance of it is, I mean, obviously, it's a good place of sharing your a good place for sharing your work and for kind of getting other people to see it and for getting feedback on that. Um, you know, it's a place for showing off, <laughs> um, for getting little hits of dopamine every time you get a like or a re repost, as it's called now. Um, we are quite addicted to uh, kind of. Dopamine. Was it always like that? Do you think, or is no. it? Well, not for me. I mean, I, I guess at the beginning, I didn't really have any followers. So then I was kind of using it as a place to just kind of find out about other people's thinking. Um, so you think the more followers you get, the more of a dopamine hit you get when you get I guess so. attention? 
I guess so. Um, and I mean, I now have set myself up with a, um, a kind of delaying an app called One Sec that delays. So when you like try and open Twitter, it tells you to take a deep breath. Um, and then you like have to decide whether you want to continue to Twitter or whether you want to do something else. So that's quite good. Um, so it forces you to have a yeah to think again yeah. about whether you really want to do this. Yeah, which I think is good because I think that we've got a kind of there's a kind of collective ADHD um, created by uh, you know social media um, that I don't think is particularly um you know good for us and for society and um uh i would like to spend less time on social media you know not just twitter but instagram which i use for a completely different reason i have a private instagram account um and i use it to like follow my friends but increase you know it used to be following your friends but increasingly it's just another form of tiktok and then you just find yourself like at two in the morning or i do <laughs> down some kind of rabbit hole where I'm watching people eating slices of toast for entertainment and I'm and I'm just so transfixed by the idea that someone could be filming themselves eating a slice of toast and that people are going to watch that and it's just the most bizarre thing and because I'm so confused and perplexed by it I then watch it and then I get served more of that stuff and I guess a lot of people end up doing that kind of thing. You know? you're, you're a skeptic of a lot of these trends. Is even should, should we even be talking, Jemima, about what people call an influencer economy? The people who are most successful at eating toast on Instagram or TikTok are influencers. Is that a good word, do you think? Is it a good word? Um, I mean, it describes something that is definitely happening but again like I think the the power of the influencer is waning as it becomes um, you know as it becomes a kind of career choice but I think there was a there was an article in the Atlantic a few months ago about influencers and there was something insane like more than half of gen gen z um people what do you want to call them children adults young adults uh were um one what would like to be influencers which is, you know... Yeah, I, mean, I saw that. It's astonishing. Completely unrealistic. That's the thing. Like, there's only ever going to be so many people. But it's like, going people. back to our first part, everyone wants to be a top podcaster, but there's only yeah. a few Russell Brands and Lex Friedmans and um, and Sam Harris's. Yeah. And those are all men. And they're all men. <laughs> Although, to be fair, there are a lot of influence. There are a lot of female influence. Oh, God, people yeah. want to be female influencers. You... You joined in 2012, in January 2012. Um, uh, researchers, psychologists have suggested it was around 2012 that young people, particularly around the world and in America, fell off a cliff when it came to anxiety and this, what we call the age of anxiety. You wrote mm -hmm. an interesting piece why we shouldn't be anxious about anxiety, suggesting that it's actually a normal way is there a connection between our age of anxiety and, 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 and the prevalence of social media, particularly after 2012? Did something happen? Yeah. I know it's a long time ago, 10, 11 years ago, Jemima, with social no, media to trigger all this anxiety. I think it's, I think it's undoubted, like uh, beyond doubt that, that yes, particularly if you look at like female, 
you know, female adolescent anxiety, really, really shocking. Um, not just anxiety, but like, you know, suicide and depression and, and self-harm. If you look at the graphs, like, you know, young girls have just like, those stats have gone through the roof in a really awful way. Um, Jonathan Haidt has done a lot of work on this, as has Jean Twenge. I've spoken to both of them. Um, and they both, I mean, Jonathan Haidt is, I think, writing a book about about exactly this at the moment. Um, you know, I think it's, 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 I'm really grateful that I didn't grow up with social media and I would be really worried if I had a daughter um, about her having to kind of, you know, the filters, it's the, the, the way that the filters work and the way that people present themselves. In particular, I mean, obviously it's hard for boys as well, but, but really in particular for girls, I think that's been a massive, massive problem. And by the way, I did write a column saying that we shouldn't be so anxious about anxiety. I don't, it's not that I don't think that there's an issue. I do think there's an issue. Um, but being anxious about it isn't going to help. And um, there's a lot of, I mean, again, like I'm very influenced by Jonathan Hyatt's thinking and, um, you know, in The Coddling of the American Mind, great book, I think. Um, he and Greg Lukianov talk a lot about, like... Yeah, Lukianov's coming on the show and, and, and oh, hey, cool. to, to come on the show when he's finished his book. We had um, Tobias Rose Stockwell on the show recently who works closely with uh, with Haidt uh, at his research institute. Oh, cool. So there is a, a growing school of people. So do you remember anything that happened in 2012 that alerted you as a journalist or just as a person to what was happening? Have you ever spoken to Angela Nagel? She's she's really, really good on all of no. this. No. She's brilliant. She's an Irish academic who lives in the, in the East Coast somewhere. Um, I don't know. Was it? I mean, I think Jonathan Haidt talks about 2015 in particular. Um, I could have that wrong, but I, th I thought, or maybe 2014. So I think a tiny bit later than that. Um, I mean, was 2012, I mean, I guess Facebook started around 2007, eight, wasn't it? And then mm. Instagram was really taking off around then. I think Instagram was the one, right? Like Instagram was far more about, um, you know, put, putting across this image of yourself. It was far more of an individualistic thing than Facebook, which was about like, I remember being at a house party in like, you know, 2010 or something and us being like, oh my God, this is a Facebook house party. Like everyone here is just here to take pictures for Facebook. <laughs> Do you know what I think it is as well? I think it's the selfie cam. I think it is putting a camera on the front of a smartphone. Um, I think before that, because I remember like when in the early days of Facebook, um, I didn't even have a camera phone or a smartphone actually at that time. And my friend would like go out with his camera and he was like taking pictures of all of us. And then he would like put them up on Facebook. Um, but that the age of the selfie cam, um, I think that has really, I think that is probably a big part of it. Um, people just like in their rooms, taking selfies of themselves, uh, so I think maybe that I would maybe argue that the actual front facing camera has had a lot to do with it, um, as well as just like everyone having smartphones. Right. I think like I think I probably got my first smartphone around 2012. I was quite slightly late to the party. I had like a five pound uh, like Samsung until then. Um, yeah. You've written also about how America is becoming uh, more mean um you 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 had a tweet about this uh 
most that was people a- want to become wealthy. You you refer to another piece in in the Atlantic by another Brooks, David Brooks, yeah. time about how America got mean. Is there a connection between the rise of social media and podcasting and this desperate wish for authenticity and social connections? and the meanness that David Brooks writes about and that you've been observing? Yes, I think so. I think like uh, that whole um, article, uh, which was in the Atlantic, like in the September issue, is about the decline of moral education. Um, And I think a lot about this and have written quite a lot about this. I'm actually writing my next column about the, the... our failure to kind of value bravery and courage anymore. I just don't think, I think that all the incentives are stacked up towards being a coward and going along with what everyone else is saying. And there's there's just barely any incentives for being brave. And I don't just mean in terms of speaking out, although I think that is a big problem. So I think that there's been a massive decline in uh, in kind of moral education. This is partly to do with, uh, you know, secularization, um, but other forces as well. and I think that, uh, I think also there's like, I mean, this is a huge kind of topic, so I feel like I'm being slightly oversimplifying stuff, but I think there's, have you read Lionel Trilling, Sincerity and Authenticity? No. In the 70s about, I mean, the idea of authenticity. Yeah, it's, a, it's, I mean, I haven't actually read all of it either. I'm, I'm in the middle of, it's, it's quite a hard read, um, but it's, an, it's a really interesting read. And uh he talks about this idea. So sincerity was this idea that this is how our identities used to be, um, how we used to kind of uh, think about our identities. So um, you would, being sincere was about kind of um, adhering to a role that you were kind of given in society, whether you were born into it or or you kind of were given that role some other way. But normally it was something that you were born into. So you were a poor person or you were an aristocrat or you were a baker like your dad was a baker and then you were going to be a baker or you were um you know you were a mother and whatever so there were these kind of roles and and you and your you would kind of form your identity based on these kind of roles and and you would try and live up to that so you would there would be this kind of outside thing that you would then try and kind of make your inside fit with if that makes sense and then around the kind of middle of the 20th century, Lionel Trilling says, um, we started kind of thinking about identity in terms of um, this idea of authenticity. And so uh, if you think about like the 60s and this whole idea that like, who are you? What, who are you on the inside? And forget all these roles that we're given by society. Like, you know, we can be whoever we want to be. And it's who you are on the inside that counts, not who you are on the outside. And so like, so then, you have to figure out who you are on the inside and then you have to live up to that. You know, that's, that's what you're kind of finding your true self. That's what we should all be trying to do. And, um, and there are these actual, there are actually, um, I've, I've got actually the book on my desk funnily enough, and I didn't actually place this here. Um, this is a really, really interesting book, which again, I haven't read the whole of, but it's about, so these, these guys called Hans-Jörg Muller and Paul J. D'Ambrosio, I've written about this as well, have come up with this term prophilicity. And that they argue that we're now in an age of prophilicity and that we've kind of moved beyond authenticity, although we still talk in the same kind of terms. We still think that we're living, that that's how we think about our identity. But they argue that, so 
the, the original idea of sincerity was this idea, as I say, that you've got these roles and you're kind of, you have to try and live up to that. And then that was flipped around. They argue that, that we've kind of reversed to a world in which we live up to these roles, but rather than it being a role like you're a, you know, you're a mother or a woman or whatever, you can now kind of choose whatever kind of you want, right? And if you look at people's Twitter bios, it's like hashtag BLM, hashtag, you know, with a little Ukraine thing or, you know, the, 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 the thing that shows you're a Remainer or like, um, you know, you put your pronouns up there or you kind of support various causes and you like, you kind of, um, yeah, you're, you say that you're a bus passenger like me. <laughs> just put up my profile um that was based on a, a thing that i went viral because i uh, yeah your uh, twitter column says columnist ft formerly forever ft alphaville best known for snark sark and sark bus passenger notorious fiat scammer great power yeah i mean those are kind of inside jokes for my own lolling pleasure um uh great so this flipping of the inside and the outside yeah. that uh I, I need to to read the trilling piece but it makes sense as i said we had tobias rose stockwell on the show arguing how the internet's become an outrage machine i'm not sure if we can blame tech for that it's more of a social thing you you had your own experience recently at bitcoin <laughs> amsterdam tell me what happened there uh, which sort of reflects this corruption if you like of public life and the way in which <laughs> social media and life itself seem to be converging in what uh, Rose Stockwell calls outrage. I don't know if it was, I don't know if I would put this into the outrage bucket, uh, although it was quite outrageous how I ended up being treated. What, when was it exactly, Jemima? Well, last, October, last October, I was asked to go and speak at the Bitcoin Amsterdam Festival conference. Uh, I am a kind of, uh, as I put on my Twitter profile, a notorious fiat scammer, as um, some Bitcoiner called me. I'm, I'm kind of slightly uh, notorious in the in the Bitcoin crypto world for being quite an um, outspoken critic of it. And um, so they asked me to do it. And I thought, you know what, like talking of being brave. Yeah, like I should go along and I should face my critics and I should, um, you know, I should talk to them. And like, I don't want to be the kind of journalist that goes and criticizes people and doesn't and doesn't speak to them. And also I'm open-minded, like I'm, I'm open to being told that I'm wrong. And so I wanna keep engaging with people I disagree with. And I find that, and you know, that's kind of a core value for me. So I went along, they asked me to um, be on this panel called Bitcoin's Media Problem, which uh, already was slightly skewed <laughs> to being kind of, uh, you know, anti what I was gonna say. And I went up there with some kind of Bitcoiners, Bitcoin bros and Isabella Kaminska, my former boss at uh, FD Alphaville, who's now doing her own thing. And, um, you know, was basically, uh, Izzy used to be much more critical of Bitcoin and she was kind of less so. So it was basically me against the, the rest of them. I mean, Izzy wasn't exactly against me, but she wasn't particularly kind of on my side either. And I got heckled and I got like, you know, I was just like really put on the spot. It was like nine in the morning and I'd slept for about, not that nine is early, but I had I, that night I'd slept for about four hours. So I was quite tired and um, I hadn't really reckoned on how, I don't know, kind of slightly well, actually, the, so the panel itself wasn't that brutal. But at one point, they were kind of telling me that I didn't know what I was talking about. And I was like, excuse me, I've been writing about this since 2015. And I was trying to kind of defend myself. But I felt a bit embarrassed that I was making that point that I've been writing about it for this many years, because that felt like a bit of an embarrassing kind of like, 
defending myself thing where I was like, well, you know. And so at that point, I started saying like. I say like a lot, far too much anyway. Um, but then when I get nervous, I say like more. And so I so I started saying, well, like, I've been writing about this from like, you know, 2015. So like, you know, maybe I do know what I'm like, you know. And I said like about 100 times in the space of 10 seconds. And then as soon as the panel was over, one of the like, I'm saying it again, but one of the Bitcoin bros, whatever, um, had kind of taken that clip and put it on the internet and it kind of went viral on Bitcoin Twitter and like Peter McCormack, who's a bit of a, um, ne anyway, art nemesis of mine, whatever, um, he changed his Twitter profile to Peter like McCormack. He's got, you know, I can't remember, maybe a million followers or something. So he's kind of, he's got the biggest Bitcoin podcast and, and I was just getting hounded, 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 hounded with people saying things like, like they were DMing me, telling me to like go and kill myself. And they were like calling me a whore. And like, and it was at the beginning, I was like laughing it all off. And I was like, oh my God, I've, I've gone viral on Bitcoin Twitter. And then someone made, like they made this meme out of me saying like, and that was kind of funny. And I, and then they made, someone made a video of me and like spliced it in with someone being, someone being like, oh my God, you're so dumb. And then uh, like a voiceover being like oh my god should we take a selfie like some valley girl like making out making me out to be really dumb or whatever and I found that funny and then like I remember on the next day I, I was continuing to get all of these uh like messages telling me to kill myself and all of this stuff and it, and I suddenly kind of I suddenly stopped finding it funny and I was like I think what I found was just that like it's just horrible to have to realize that there is that much uh like vileness out there you know you just i I'm, I'm quite a kind of positive person who 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 likes people on the whole you know i like i like meeting people and i like whether they're whether they're they voted for brexit or trump or whatever i can get on with people like i i really like talking to people and i enjoy kind of getting different perspectives and stuff but um, so I found it really kind of disillusioning, I guess, to kind of come across that kind of horrible uh, kind of bullying, really, I guess. Um, so that was a, yeah, that was a kind of um, unpleasant experience. And it's such a kind of like micro, you know, if I experienced that because I said like too many times and criticized Bitcoin to a pile of like Bitcoin bros, you know, like I just... I just can't imagine what people who are really, who are really kind of told that they're bad people experience. For example, JK Rowling, like she must take so much um, just bile and, and people telling her that she's a bad person. Cause at least I wasn't being told I was a bad person. I was just being told that I was an idiot. Right. And that's, you know, you can deal with that, but kind of, I don't know. I just, I, I just can't even that that experience was such a tiny thing compared to what other people are, are put through. And and again, it takes a lot of bravery, whether or not you agree with with everything that J.K. Rowling has to say. Um, she's incredibly brave to keep saying it. And people are like, "Why would you want to die on that hill?" You know. And we have this this phrase, "Why would you want to die on this hill?" And it's such a kind of uh, it's such a kind of uh, an, a proof of of our lack of bravery and like um you know i don't i don't 
I, I think I should be braver in, you know, as a columnist, like you should be brave. That's what you should be. You should be, if you're not pissing people off some of the time, you know, like Orwell, the whole like journalism is writing what someone else doesn't want to be, doesn't want printed. Everything else is propaganda. And I do think I do. I kind of, if I'm upsetting people, not upsetting people because for the sake of being provocative or offensive, obviously not. I don't think there's any point in that. But if I'm not kind of rocking the boat a bit, then I feel like I'm not doing a good job. So 